As he stood on the deck of that ship, Johan knew that this was the point of no return. If he were going to go back, if he were going to change his mind, now would be the time to do it. It seemed like everything stood in his way to get to this point. Everyone told him that he could not do this, that he was just endangering his own life, that it was useless because they would not listen to a word he had to say. Yet the call was so clear. He knew in his heart that God had singled him out to go. It was as if he was the only one in the room that God was speaking to as the preacher shared the plight of a people who lived in darkness. A people in absolute ignorance with no hope of hearing the saving story of God's love in Jesus Christ. The questions pierced his soul. Why not me? Why should I not go? Questions for which he had no answer and no objection. As these thoughts flooded his mind, he fumbled with the letter in his hand. It was the only means of introduction to a people who otherwise would always be suspicious of his efforts. All they had ever known from the white man was oppression and abuse. Their daily way of life was only backbreaking work, and for that, they were afforded just enough to survive. So this letter from one of their own was the only hope of acceptance among the slaves of St. Thomas Island. As the sails filled with the ocean breeze and the boards creaked with the troubling of the waters below him, it was time to go. Whatever lay ahead, whatever the cost, whatever the indignities and want that he may experience in trying to reach the impoverished and oppressed African slaves of St. Thomas, Johann Leonard Dober was willing to endure it for the sake of the call of the gospel. Compared to God's only son who gave his life on the cross for him, Johann saw the selling of his life into the bonds of slavery, a small price to pay. I'm Ronnie Brown, and this is Forgotten. before Martin Luther ever nailed his 95 Theses to the church house door in Wittenberg, Germany, an attempt at reformation of the Catholic Church had already taken place in the region of Bohemia, what is now the modern-day Czech Republic. John Huss was a Catholic priest, philosopher, and professor that spoke out against many of the practices of the Catholic Church that Luther would one day question. The teachings such as The practice of indulgences, the prohibition of marriage for priests, and the doctrine of purgatory were all in the sights of John Huss. After gaining support among the students and common people of Prague, where he taught and preached, he led a protest against the Catholic Church. After being summoned to the council at Constance, Huss was determined to be a heretic and was burned at the stake on July the 6th, 1415. The followers of Huss did not disband after the loss of their teacher and continued in his Reformation teaching. Some of them became known as the Bohemian Brethren or the Unity of the Brethren. They lived in a strict obedience to the Sermon on the Mount and rebelled against the power of the Catholic Church. For this, they were denounced as heretics and subject to the cruelest of treatments. 
the confrontation came to blows between the two forces in the Bohemian Revolt. Protestant forces were defeated in the Battle of White Mountain near Prague. The Bohemian brethren were scattered and forced to worship by the dictates of their own conscience in an underground church. Many fled to other European countries. But there remained a community in the Moravian section of Bohemia that for many years lived and worshipped secretly under the shadow of the Catholic Church. They were referred to as the Hidden Seed in hopes that they would remain in the Bohemian land preserving the faith once delivered to the saints. But by 1722, the threats of religious persecution became too great. The Moravian Church made the decision to seek refuge elsewhere. In 1722, they came to the Berthersdorf estate of Nicholas Ludwig von Zinzendorf, a nobleman who had been brought up in the tradition of pietism. Pietism was a movement in Lutheranism that emphasized biblical doctrine with the Reformed emphasis on individual piety and living a vigorous Christian life. Zinzendorf, who, at the young age of 22, recently made a personal commitment to God to helping the poor and the needy. And there on his doorstep was Christian David telling him of his plight for religious freedom and asking if he and his family could settle on his lands. Zinzendorf agreed, and they began to build a life in present-day Saxony in the eastern part of modern-day Germany. Not long after, he was asked if more of his family and friends from the Moravian church could settle there. Before long, word spread of the hospitality of Zinzendorf, and more and more religious refugees began to settle in the little village of Hernhut. But as the town grew, so did the religious disagreements between its citizens. By 1727, the entire community had divided into factions, disarray, and severe conflict. Count Zinzendorf took an indefinite leave from his work in the court at Dresden and came to Hernhut to do everything in his power to bring the community back into harmony. He made a concerted effort to visit each home in the community for prayer and to hear their grievances. In the end, he called all the men of the village together for an intense study of the scriptures. After a lengthy and prayerful study of the Word of God, they came to the conclusion that they were to live in loving peace with one another and that the conflict that they had experienced was contrary to the clear teaching of the Word of God. This realization birthed a brotherly agreement by which the whole community would abide, an agreement to dedicate their lives to the service of the Lord Jesus Christ. Following the meeting and throughout the summer months of 1727, there was continued meetings of prayer and Bible study. These meetings grew more and more intense in times of corporate prayer. It was on August the 12th, 1727, during a special communion service at the Berthelsdorf Church, that there was an unusual outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon all that were gathered there in the place. It marked the beginning of a dramatic transformation of the entire community and a new era of spiritual growth in Hernhut. A spirit of revival broke out in the little community. Zinzendorf later recalled, quote, The whole place represented truly a visible habitation of God among men, end quote. Along with this move of God came an overwhelming urgency for prayer. By August 27th, 24 men and 24 women covenanted together to continue praying in intervals of one hour each day and night. 
each hour allocated by lots to different people. Later, others joined the prayer effort, raising the number to 77. This was not isolated to the adults only. Children of the village began to be touched with a spirit of prayer. This only ignited a perpetuating desire for the whole community to give themselves to prayer. Their prayer was for the reviving work of God among them to continue and for lost souls to be saved at both home and abroad. And this hourly intercession of the people of Hernhut went on for years. During this time, Zinzendorf became convinced that the chief duty of the Christian church was to evangelize the unconverted, especially the despised and neglected among it. It wasn't long before God would allow him a way to put his conviction into action. In 1731, when Zinzendorf attended the coronation of Christian VI of Denmark, he struck up a conversation with a Negro slave from the Caribbean island of St. Thomas by the name of Anthony Ulrich. He shared with Zinzendorf the plight and the hardships which the slaves suffered. Along with this, they had no access to the teaching of the gospel. He had a precious sister that had no hope of ever hearing the gospel because the slaves lived in constant threat of the whip if they even came near a church. Ulrich believed with certainty that the only way to reach these imprisoned people was for the one sent to them to become a slave themselves. This story broke the heart of Zinzendorf, and he sensed God's call on him to do something for the slaves in the West Indies. Upon arriving back at Hernhut on July the 24th, 1731, Count Zinzendorf gave an impassioned plea for mission work to be done among the slaves in the Caribbean. He was clear about the cost that may be involved as well, that the one that chose to answer this call must be willing to submit themselves to be sold into slavery for the cause of Jesus Christ. As he spoke of Christ's commission for the church to go into all the world and preach the gospel and to go into the highways and hedges to compel them to come in, Johann Dauber's heart burned within his breast. It was as if, with every word, God was awakening within him an unquenchable fire to reach these people of desperate need. Every objection of his mind was quickly melted away by the love of the Lord Jesus. Upon opening the scriptures after a sleepless night, Johann read Deuteronomy 32:47, For it is not a vain thing for you, because it is your life. And through this thing you shall prolong your days in the land. These words only strengthened his resolve to go. He shared with Count Zinzendorf what God had made clear into his own heart. Zinzendorf was delighted with the young man's surrender to the will of God. But others were more hesitant as to the genuineness of this calling. At length, the decision was given over to the casting of lots. The words drawn were this, quote, Let the lad go up, for the Lord is with him. End quote. It was settled. Johann Dauber would go on mission to the slaves of the island of St. Thomas. Now, although many of the brethren still had their doubts and even objected to this missionary experiment, Johann was willing to give his very life in order to share the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ with these enslaved people. A brother, David Nishman, was designated to go with him to see that he settles into the mission work and then return back to Hernhut. On August the 20th, 1731, 
with the blessing of the majority of the brethren, they set out to board a ship from Copenhagen to St. Thomas. All along the way, they were met with discouragement and obstacles. Virtually everyone that they encountered told them that what they were doing was a fool's errand. Time and time again, they were warned that they would either die of disease or be killed by the very people they were trying to reach. The Negro slave that had brought the story with him in the first place, who had every intention of going back with them to St. Thomas, backed out at the last minute. He begged them not to go, for them to stay home and to stay in safety. When they refused, he left them with only a letter of introduction sent to his sister. If that wasn't enough, the West India Company ship that they had booked passage on caught wind of what they were doing and refused them passage. When it seemed like the mission had failed before it ever even began, Princess Charlotte Amalie of Denmark heard news of their plight and was moved by the story of their mission. She assisted them with funds to book a passage with another ship and gave them a copy of the scriptures, a precious resource at that time. Finally, they were able to book passage on another Dutch ship. On October the 8th, 1732, as they set sail for St. Thomas, the men were reported to have said to their friends on the dock, May the lamb that was slain receive the reward of his suffering. Although they were constantly harassed and mocked by the crew, they would not be deterred from their mission. Two months after they set sail, they landed on St. Thomas and delivered the letter to Anthony's sister, Anna. After introduction, Johann preached the gospel to her, her brother, Abraham, and to all that were within earshot. He preached that Jesus Christ shed his blood on the cross for them and that they, by believing on him, would be saved. The slaves rejoiced and clapped their hands to receive such good news. Over time, the Lord saved Anna and her brother Abraham and others. And although David Nitschmann left when he was settled into life there on St. Thomas, Johann Dahmer ceased not to invite sinners to come to the crucified Savior for forgiveness and redemption. Dober was accepted by the plantation owners to a degree and was never required to sell himself into slavery to converse among the slaves. After two years of preaching the gospel among these slaves and seeing some success, Johann Dauber was called back to Hernhut and given another assignment. But he was soon replaced by other missionaries that would continue his work for the next 50 years, establishing churches on St. Thomas, St. Croix, St. John's, Jamaica, Antigua, Barbados, and St. Kitts. Moravian missionaries in these islands baptized 13,000 converts before any other missionaries ever arrived on the scene. But this is the overwhelming characteristic of the Moravian church under the direction of Zinzendorf. At the time Johann Dauber left Hernhut, the Moravian community numbered little more than 300 people. By the time Zinzendorf died in 1760, this little Moravian community had sent out 226 missionaries and had entered 10 different countries. Mission outposts were established in St. Thomas in the West Indies, Greenland, Georgia in North America, Lapland, Suriname on the north coast of South America, Cape Town in South Africa, Elima, the Dutch headquarters in the Gold Coast, 
Guyana, South America, Jamaica, and Antigua. In 1760, there were 49 men and 17 women serving in 13 mission locations around the world, ministering to over 6,000 people. By 1791, this small Moravian community had sent out over 300 missionaries to the ends of the earth. And all of this before the father of modern missions, William Carey, ever set sail for India. This all had its beginning in a prayer meeting that was extended to an hourly intercession, 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, 365 days in a year. A prayer vigil that lasted not a year or two, not a decade or two, but a prayer vigil that lasted a hundred years. In that hundred years, the world was impacted with the gospel of Jesus Christ in a scale unseen since the first century. This is a testimony to the truth of Jesus' words. The harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few. Pray ye the Lord of the harvest that he will send forth laborers into the harvest. Forgotten is written and produced by me, Ronnie Brown. You can find out more about this show at ForgottenPodcast.com. And as always, thanks for listening.